Hello and welcome to The Bunker with me, Dorian Linsky. On this week's podcast, The Art of the Steel, as the New York Times exposes Donald Trump's microscopic income tax payments, will their revelations affect November's election? And will Joe Biden be able to exploit the president's tiny tax bill in the first debate of the campaign? Plus, as the QAnon conspiracy theory gains traction here in Britain, will we have to get used to batshit irrationality as a growing force in politics? And whatever happened to the teenage dream, university turns out to be just another lockdown with no jobs at the end of it, and you can't even get drunk. It's COVID ruining youth. All this and more in today's Bunker. Welcome back to The Bunker. We hope you enjoyed last week's Bunker versus Romaniacs live Zoom for Patreon backers. If you missed it, there's video and audio up on our Patreon site, so sign up to watch, listen, and get our Bunker merchandise. To find out more, search Patreon Bunker Podcast. Two of the stars of last week's live stream join us today. First up is columnist and Times Radio opinion jockey, Aisha Hazarika. Hi, Aisha. Hello, opinion jockey. I have not been called that before. So I'm happy. I thought that was the technical term. <laughs> I love it. I'm quite short, so I suppose that's where the jockey thing is quite appropriate, and I have lots of opinions, so there you go. So, exciting week in media with the government floating Charles Moore as chairman of the BBC and Paul Dacre as head of Ofcom. The charter isn't up for renewal until 2027, which is after the next election, but BBC staff are are understandably worried. Does this give you a a clear idea of what the government wants for the BBC and uh, in terms of Ofcom, the broadcasting landscape generally? Well, I thought this is really interesting. I mean, there's two schools of thought. There is the, I mean, well, there's there's three schools of thought. There's number one, absolute outrage at, at the idea of, of two kind of arch critics of, of the BBC having such um, big, big rules. And, and Charles Moore famously, you know, you know, people shouldn't have to pay a licence fee, etc., there's another school of thought, and I uh, spoke to Alistair Campbell about this on my um, Times Radio show. He was like, "This is just another part of the. This is another one of the dead cat strategies." We should be seeing the government is now representing pet cemetery in terms of all these sort of um, <laughs> these poor deceased moggies kind of um, flying flying around, and that again, it's just a massive, massive distraction from COVID and and from the economy. And there is a third school of thought, which is. What did we think they were going to do? You know, this is a government that does have a very big majority for the foreseeable future until the next general election. They've made no concealment of the fact that they do want to rip down all these institutions. It is important to note that even when Labour came in, um, there was a lot of, 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 of stuffing um, quangos full of people on your side. You know, Gavin Davies was appointed chairman of the of the BBC. Alistair said he wasn't that close to uh, the Labour Party. His wife was Sunai, who is like Gordon Brown's closest, most senior um, advisor. Um, and, you know, Ed Richards went into Ofcom. So in a way... This is what governments do to the victor, the spoils. They do try to use all the levers of power. But I am inclined to feel, I, I think Charles, the Charles Moore thing is a distinct impossibility. And I'm kind of dismayed, but not that shocked. Also joining us on today's show, we have writer and editor Justin Quirk. There's more good news for angry middle-aged men who just want to be listened to for once. Uh, because... Lawrence Fox is setting up a new political party to reclaim British values. It's called Reclaim. Do you think this will will actually turn into anything of substance? Or is it all part of his ongoing culture war slash grift slash midlife crisis? Oh, God, Lawrence Fox. Um, I mean, it won't happen in any meaningful way because as with all these sort of anti-woke attention seekers like Fox, despite imagining themselves to be this sort of tribune of the ordinary bloke, most people, if they're aware of them at all, just find them boring and offensive. You know, they operate in these sort of fairly limited sort of bubbles on Twitter where everyone pats them on the back. But he'll probably cobble something together at a sort of what we could say is like a kind of Toby Young level and the sort of ideological equivalent of a brass plate company where it's essentially just him and a Twitter feed and he can exist just to give quotes to people and to trend on Twitter every few weeks and generally make the world a sort of worse place. And maybe at some point him and Martin Daubney can collaborate like some sort of dim-witted alien v. Predator. Well, it's weird that we haven't, uh, we haven't heard much from Toby Young's Big Talk Club since it was, uh, since it was founded. 
I think they're just biding their time, Dorian. There'll be (laughs) some huge warfare. But but it's almost impressive with Fox that he's managed the speed and aggression with which he's managed to go from being this kind of low-level Sunday evening ITV irritants that you were sort of dimly aware of to now being one of those people that's turbocharged himself into something where the minute you go on Twitter and see that his name, like Rod Liddle or Julia Hartley-Brewer, as soon as you see their name trending you just feel kind of the will to live ebbing away from inside you. So uh, he's um, it's quite an achievement in some ways. Well, I'm slightly offended uh, that if, if I must be forced into a culture war, then I would like my opponents to be a bit more impressive than, you know, uh, Tom Harwood, Lawrence Fox, Darren Grimes. Like, they're not, they're not choosing their best men. Or maybe they are. Maybe they are their best men. <laughs> uh, and completing the panel is fellow live streamer, former diplomat Arthur Snell. Hi, Arthur. Hi, Dorian. Uh, so completing the trifecta of culture war excitement this week was the announcement of Andrew Neil's uh, departure for the BBC and uh, launch of an alternative news channel, GB News, on the way. Do you expect uh, something like Fox News-style partisanship with a kind of fig leaf of balance to appease the regulators? Uh, like, I, I don't really know. It's meant to sort of represent the unrepresented, but obviously what they mean by the unrepresented is is probably quite different. <laughs> to what I might think. Uh, How do you imagine it'll shape up? Well, I think a lot depends on the regulators. Now, if going back to your conversation with Aisha, if you've got Paul Dacre running Ofcom, they might be able to go sort of full Fox News, which is, I'm sure, what they'd like to do. But, you know, Ofcom is, is, is a fairly large institution. And as many people have pointed out, it does lots of things beyond just, you know, policing balance in broadcast even in the event that Paul Dacre manages to get control of it, is he going to be able to sort of egregiously, in a partisan way, kind of remove the uh, the sort of regulatory balance that it's maintained hitherto? I don't know. So I, I wonder whether GB News will turn out to be a bit of a disappointment for those who are hoping for Fox with an English accent. To begin, nothing is certain but death, taxes, and the fact that Donald Trump has sadly avoided both. The president famously couldn't release his tax returns during the last election because they're under audit, and four years later, they still are. But a blockbuster investigation by the New York Times found that Trump only paid $750 in income tax in both 2016 and 2017, no income tax at all in 10 of the previous 15 years. Meanwhile, Joe Biden paid $3.7 million in taxes in 2017 and gave $1 million to charity, while Trump managed to muster no dollars. Justin, Trump's base is effectively a cult of personality, so they won't care, and we don't care uh, that they don't care. But will a story like this damage him with those kind of uh, those all important conservatives and independents who who held their noses previously? I think it will to some degree. I mean, <clears throat> I think you're right that there's that third group who really do get overlooked in a lot of discussions. I think you know, from looking over here, we tend to assume that everyone is at one extreme or the other around Trump and. Yeah, the polls have been very stable for that reason. But there is this group down the middle who are socially quite conservative, somewhat apolitical, or, you know, it's on the periphery of what they're thinking about. And I think in swing states like Pennsylvania, they're targeting them really cleverly to this campaign. I don't know if you saw the, the huge campaign of billboard ads that went up across Pennsylvania at the weekend. And they're, you know, very simple, just shots of kind of regular middle American voters saying, you know, I'm pro-life, I'm Christian, and I'm voting for Biden. And I think what they're trying to create is that sort of architecture by which people who voted for Trump last time can kind of climb down off the ladder um, and get away with it. I think for people who, I think the way this story's played out, I think for people who pay a very sort of passing interest to politics, which, you know, we should always remind ourselves is the vast majority of people. They don't give it a lot of thought. It registers because it cuts against very basic ideas of decency in a very, very tangible way, in a way that the more complicated things or things which might happen in the future don't. You know, I think and that's why that $750 number is so salient, because, you know, if you're trying to get people interested and explain to them about, you know, shell companies and leaseback agreements and, you know, weird property investments you lose the room very quickly. I think on a very basic level, saying to people, look, in the financial climate we're in, the way you're struggling, if you're a part-time childminder, you paid more tax than the president, is very simple and very powerful attack line, I think. 
Well, there are two possible lines of attack, but they seem to me quite contradictory. One is that he's not a billionaire. He just played one on TV and he's really a bad businessman up to his eyes in debt. The other is that he is actually rich, but he's also a tax fraud. There's some truth in both of those, but but which would you which would you focus on? Is he is a kind of a lying loser or a, a rich crook? It's a really good question. I mean, and you, like you say, they they are sort of bound up together in some ways. I think what's been interesting is looking at the sort of the far right into the media and how they're covering it. So one American news network just weren't covering it at all. Even the National Review, which you know I can remember when it was sort of a serious publication, was kind of rationalising it away as oh, it's just what business guys do. I think of those two options, I think the bad businessman is the one that is going to damage him more because I think we have to accept that there's a substantial part of even his hardline base and, you know, the people that go to the rallies or whatever who are totally fine with the racism, the violence, dismantling of democracy. But at some deep level, they basically voted for the flash guy from The Apprentice as a sort of aspirational father figure. And the black and white revelation that he's actually a sort of busted flush as a businessman. You know, America culturally is very hard on losers. You know, it's not a... And I think this is going to have repercussions. If he loses big in November, you know, for ideas of whether there'll be a sort of dynastic element to the family. And I think, you know, my final point would be, I think the thing that really hits with this story is a lot of what's horrified us about Trump over the last four years has been about things that he may do in the future, you know, it's been about him removing guardrails and trashing norms that will give him the power to do terrible things. And the pushback is always, oh, well, he may not. Now, that is something you should worry about, but it's all speculative. Whereas what you've seen here is that it's something that you can categorically say he's already done and was a bad thing. So I think in that sense, it may land a little more than previous stories have. But then we're talking about an election that may be decided on quite tight margins. So it maybe doesn't need to land that hard. Aisha, his outriders have been claiming that anyone would have done the same in his position, uh, although the vast majority of Americans will never be in his position uh, and perhaps do not do not empathise with the uh, with the tax tax headaches of the very rich. Is that a helpful spin? You know, he's the, he's the guy who's clever enough to get away with it. Well, there's so many um, different lines of defence and attack um, coming from his outriders. You know, I've seen, you know, people say that, haha, he's really, really smart to have avoided all of this tax. And actually, if you're a true Republican, you shouldn't believe in paying taxes. Taxes are a bad thing. So, haha, you know, get him. <laughs> and then I've also heard, um, you know, other people saying, oh, this is just all a complete line. He's actually paid a huge amount in intact. So they seem to, uh, believe it or not, not have a, a coherent um, strategy in terms of how they're, um, <laughs> I mean, who knew? Who knew? The thing I just love about, and I can't believe you haven't talked, I just can't believe how much he has claimed on his hair. I mean, I think that is like a real scandal. There are female like freelancers and indeed male freelancers all across the country right now thinking, can I put in a bit more for hairdressing in terms of like tax liability? Um, but look, again, I just feel that I felt the story was extraordinary. You know, my jaw was on the floor, $750. The fact that, you know, undocumented migrants pay more in tax than, than he has. But again, I just feel this is so divisive. If you hate Trump, then this makes you hate him even more. If you love Trump, you you find a way to to, to justify it. I mean, I think it's going to be interesting to see how much Joe Biden really goes on this in the debates. I mean, commentators were speculating that 750 is actually a very handy number for a debate because it's really clear, it's really easy, it's really simple. But what I've already seen some of his outriders do, as soon as you start mentioning, they go on the attack, their attack line is Biden's son, Hunter. I mean, they are that's their attack line. Their attack line is, well, how much tax does he pay? Mm. So I, I kind of slightly worry that, again, this is so polarised, the sort of liberal progressive will be like, ha ha, we got him. And there'll be a whole bunch of people going, I don't care about this. I still think he's great. Well, um, I mean, we shouldn't talk too much about it because, the, I mean, uh, we're recording on Tuesday. The debate, first debate happens tonight. Uh, but by the time uh, people hear this, it will have, have happened. But what do you think, you know, g- going into it that Biden needs to do? Because it's not going to be uh, perhaps a debate in the classic Oxford Union sense. I think that Biden has done very well up until now, 
by kind of hiding in the basement. And he's left it, he's cleared the field and he's left it to be Trump versus COVID, which has been a, a good frame. But there's no doubt that it is going to be much more difficult when the two men face each other. And Trump will definitely go low. He will, you know, go after Biden's son. He's going to attack Biden on his character, on his age, which I know is madly sort of contradictory, but I think he will still do it. And I think it's just going to be interesting to see if Joe Biden goes high and he stays high or he does have a sucker punch to put to the American people. I spoke to Anthony Scaramucci on Saturday night on my show and he was, I mean, their frame and of course the Lincoln Project, and we've spoken to um, Steve Schmidt from the Lincoln Project on this podcast before. I mean, their frame, and I think Biden will do this, is he'll try not to make it too personal against Donald Trump. I think they'll try it and make the argument for this isn't about hating this person, this is about loving your country. They'll make a patriotic case for why he's damaging the country on COVID, on the economy, on taxes, you know, that type of thing. Arthur, a lot of people uh, think that Trump's corruption is so priced in that nothing matters any anymore. Um, and they said the same about his uh, alleged contempt for war veterans, his comments to Bob Woodward about downplaying the dangers of COVID. Uh, it's the kind of, it's the nothing matters crowd. What do you think does matter uh, to swing voters? Is it, is, it, is it easy to sort of go, okay, well, this probably won't register outside people already hate him, but this will? Or do we sort of have to, or do we have to wait and see in each case? It's actually impossible to predict what's going to hurt him. Well, I think one of the issues is actually there aren't many swing voters. So, I mean, the, the polls have been very stable, but the, the the number of undecideds is is comparative to other years is a very small number. So part of the issue with this whole campaign is I think that people had made up their minds about Donald Trump. COVID sort of cemented that and, and pointed, proved that he was a cynical, incompetent, you know, sort of vulgar you would go on and people are not particularly enthused by joe biden but uh they know that he's no donald trump they know that he's going to appoint normal people and put them back in government and all that kind of thing and so i'm not really sure that it comes down to finding the thing that will change people's minds i think what it will really come down to is this question of turnout and obviously the trump campaign in 2016 were very good at uh, depressing turnout. There's been a very interesting uh, Channel 4 report on the way they managed to depress black turnout in certain states. Uh, so it's that thing of, are the people who don't want Trump to, to be president anymore sufficiently motivated to turn out in sufficient numbers? Well, what's amazing uh, is that for all the drama, the polls have remained fairly steady for months. Biden has the most stable lead of, of any candidate in decades. Um, the latest thing that is apparently uh, going to change all that is uh, the replacement for Ruth Bader Ginsburg on the Supreme Court. Justin, Trump picked Circuit Judge Amy Coney Barrett for his nominee, or at least the Federalist Society helpfully picked her for him. Barrett's positioned herself as the heir to the ultra-conservative originalist Antonin Scalia. Even if the Democrats win the White House and Congress in November, what could a 6-3 conservative court mean for a progressive agenda? I mean, it doesn't sound great, but I think the thing to remember is it's very hard to say because judges historically have often behaved in ways that both the public and crucially also the people who appointed them don't expect. And we had a few examples as recent as this summer. There was the Bostock versus Clayton County ruling, um, which effectively meant that the LGBTQ community was protected from employment discrimination. That went through at 6-3, uh, which took me by surprise. And the uh, Justice Neil Gorsuch, who was sort of the great hope of fairly extreme Republicans, uh, actually wrote the majority opinion on that. And there's an interesting sort of long history of this. goes back, um, Justice uh, Warren, who was appointed by Eisenhower, served between 53 and 69. Um, and he was seen as being this, you know, real sort of extremist of his day. He'd been one of the driving forces between Japanese Americans being locked up during World War II and interned. Um, and yet he ended up writing the uh, the opinion in Brown versus Board of Education, which Yeah, but I think I think the thing is that, that what's happened is the Federalist Society responds to these, you know, and the great disappointments of like David Souter and Anthony Kennedy and these Republican appointments which turn out not to be conservative enough. And and Barrett is about as conservative as it as it gets. So Assuming that she 
is what she appears to be, what does a 6-3 majority mean uh, in terms of a democratic agenda getting through, even if they control the other two branches? I just think it's very hard to say because there's, I say the, it is sort of the, it's like a bug, a feature rather than a bug of the, the role is that once they're once they're on the bench, they're effectively on there for life. So as much as from a liberal perspective, you sort of think, well, this is terrible because, you know, they're sort of baked in for decades. It also means that the people who appointed them have sort of lost you know, whatever they control they had over them there. So, um, yeah, I, you know, I don't, I don't want to be sort of Pollyanna-ish about it. I don't think it feels overly, or, I mean, I'm not overly optimistic about this stuff, but I think it's, it doesn't, I don't think it's as much of a done deal as people sometimes suspect with this stuff. Ah, okay. Um, I suppose I think it probably, I probably think it is. And let's assume. I'm trying, uh, I'm trying to be optimistic here. <laughs> I don't, I'm not optimistic about her at all. So, so Aisha, if Barrett is confirmed, uh, you know, people talking about the end of an era that began with the women's liberation movement, the seventies, uh, I mean, the end of, of other things as well, but obviously in light of Ruth Bader Ginsburg's legacy, even though these, uh, religious conservatives are only about a third of the electorate. Do you think that the Democrats would be justified in pushing through really quite aggressive measures like the expansion of the court or to rebalance the Senate, granting statehood to Washington, D.C. and and Puerto Rico. At this point, do they have to take drastic measures to prevent rule by a minority? Well, I think they have to look at keeping every option on the table because I do think the stakes are so high. And you're right about this being a really important moment for women's rights. Um, You know, we talked, I think, a a few months ago about Mrs. America, and it feels like all the progress that has been hard fought for could be, you know, reversed and, and, you know, it can be gone very, very, very quickly. And and this woman is absolutely crystal clear about what her um, priorities are and what her views are. So, if I were the Democrats, I would absolutely be looking at all of these options as serious as they seem and as kind of mad as they seem. But, you know, the, for me, the the issue of abortion is just so worrying. I mean, that is firmly back on the table. There are a number of state cases being brought, quite a few of them, which is all going to look to unpick Roe versus Wade. And this is of huge concern. Of course, it's not just that. It's going to be looking at um, Obamacare. And one of the things that was interesting as well, I mean, quite a lot of people have been speculating, why did he push through this appointment now? You know, would it not have been better to have her as a kind of running mate, get abortion sort of right back on the ticket, if you like? But of course, you know, she he wants to make sure that he's got the right people sitting there for you know, in case it's close. Mm. So I do think it's really worrying. And if I were the Democrats, this is not the time to sort of play nice and, you know, you know, play by the sort of conventional rules. If I were them, I would be looking at every bit of sort of guerrilla warfare they can muster because, you know, if, 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 if she, if he does win, I mean, if she does get through and if he does win, this is really serious. This is really serious for the whole of America. Now, you're probably aware that a secretive global cabal of liberal politicians, Hollywood stars and Satanists are abducting and abusing children around the world and only Donald Trump could stop it. That is the mad, 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 mad world of QAnon, the conspiracy theory that's poisoning the US election and is now gaining traction here in Britain. Believers have joined anti-lockdown protests in Trafalgar Square over the past few weekends, as Right Said Fred pointed out on Twitter. How susceptible is Britain to a worldview as extreme as QAnon and can we do anything about it? Arthur, the QAnon theory, I mean, it's relatively recent, but it has been around since 2017. Why is it only now uh, gaining some traction here in the UK? I think this is very much a 2020 issue. The combination of COVID, of Black Lives Matter protests, there's a, and the fact that a lot of people are sitting at home, probably spending too much time online, has been very, very propitious for spreading conspiracy theories. And so... QAnon has been around, as you say, since 2017. But 2020 is the year that if you look at its spread, it starts to spread in a few countries. And sadly, the UK is in the sort of front row there. And you've worked on radicalization uh, among Islamists with Prevent. 
does QAnon uh, fit the bill of a, of a radicalizing ideology? Does it does it work on people in a similar way? Yeah, I think it does absolutely, and I think this is one of the reasons we need to take it seriously because there's something which those of us involved with sort of looking at Islamism uh, became very familiar with, which is this idea of the single narrative, and this was basically a sort of umbrella overarching conspiracy theory which Islamists, militant Muslims used to uh, spread radicalization. And effectively, it was a theory that, you know, the world is, is prejudiced against Islam, Muslims in all kinds of different places, whether it's Palestine, Bosnia, Afghanistan, you name it, they've always been subjected to repression, to subjugation by the great powers, obviously the state of Israel, Jewish conspiracies. You can see how you could you could sort of stitch together this overarching narrative. And in a way, this is what QAnon does. It's something that draws together a whole range of different conspiracy narratives and gives people something approaching a sort of coherent view. Now, I mean, that may sound a bit crazy to you and me because the idea of, of you know, paedophile cannibals seems a bit off beam. But QAnon, what it manages <laughs> to do is sort of draw in existing conspiracies. So there's obviously plenty of people who are very sort of very kind of upset about the concept of paedophile rings here in, 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 in the UK. Let's not forget that there was a whole set of conspiracies about the sort of elite VIP paedophiles. Also the 5G groups, the anti-vax groups, and actually, uh, 2020 is uh, we've just passed a very important anniversary. It's the 20th year, uh, 20th anniversary, almost exactly of the time when a mob in uh, Newport in South Wales attacked the home of a paediatrician, thinking that she was a paedophile. So you know, Britain has got its its own uh, proud history in this area, um, and it has led to some violence in the US. And obviously, the you know, obviously the la- a large part of the concern with uh, the radicalization of, of uh, Islamists was that it would lead to violence. Do you think that that could happen here? Or do you think it's more of a kind of uh, an online disinformation problem? I think it could happen. And looking back at the US, you know, in the US now, extreme white nationalist and, you know, QAnon does fit into that broad category. Extreme white nationalist militancy is killing lots more people than any other type of uh, extremism, including Islamist extremism. Now, the US <laughs> is a much more violent society. People have ready access to, to powerful weapons, which, of course, brings its own challenges. Here in Britain, that is not the case, mercifully. But ultimately, if you have people who feel that they have no way of expressing themselves, either politically or, or in other sort of ordinary channels, and, and they're being constantly told that the system is rigged against them, that there is a, a sinister elite that, that exists, that, you know, controls things in ways that, that they're not able to, to kind of access. I think there's always a risk that, you know, only it takes one or two probably deluded, mentally unsound people uh, that violence can occur. So it's not something that I think is, you know, about to break out. But I think it, it, certainly the, the possibility should be taken seriously. Justin, Arthur mentioned that there is the uh, the simple uh, practical factor that a lot of people are kind of stuck at home spending too much time online. But many of the, the QAnon believers are also anti-lockdown. That's where we've seen them in the wild, so to speak, at these Travail Square protests. Why do you think COVID has been such an accelerant for conspiracy theories and, and not, not just QAnon, but the, you know, you've got your 5G, your Bill Gates and so on? I think it's a really perfect storm. I mean, these things always grow at times of chaos. You, know, you have a large confluence of people who desperately want normality and answers and a neat narrative framework for things. And a lot of life is just not supplying that to them right now. If you want normality, um, the kind of theory of like a, a kind of massive paedophile ring seems like an odd place to place to look for it. Like what do they... What do they get out of, of of something which, even by the standards of, of most conspiracy theories, is is wild? I think something you touched on there that I think we often overlook when we're trying to get our heads around this stuff is that for a lot of people, this stuff is really fun. It presses a lot of the same buttons. There's been some really good writing about how it parallels with things like LARPing or alternate reality games. And 
you know, that sort of sense of kind of mass collaboration on a project. And now, at its best, the internet has obviously been great for this. At its best, this can produce things like, um, you know, like Bellingcat and sort of open source analysis. This is sort of like the dark twin of it. And it's essentially, I think for a lot of these people, it's functioning and giving them the kind of dopamine hits that a giant game would. Aisha, Trump has provided a constant stream of conspiracy theories uh, before office and in office. He's very supporters of QAnon as people that love our country uh, and refuse to disavow the theory. What does it do to a democracy when uh, the leader pours petrol rather than water on the flames? You know, he is himself a conspiracy theorist. Well, it's incredibly corrosive because people take their cues from political leaders. They take their cues in terms of conduct, in terms of language, in terms of values, in terms of how they behave, and of course, in terms of conspiracy theories. And the idea that we have, I mean, again, the thing with Trump is you feel like, is there no floor in terms of this, like, you know, ethical horror show? The answer is is no. And he, you know, he does um, promulgate these ideas, you know, he will retweet um, these accounts, you know, he he's quite careful to sort of himself, I mean, I don't know if he's directly said things, but he's very, very careful to sort of endorse things and he sort of legitimises things. But of course, look, we're talking about somebody who promulgated one of the worst conspiracy theories, which was the Bertha conspiracy theory against President Obama, a theory, by the way, his wife went on television to push as well. Everybody says, oh, poor Melania, she's just a victim of all of this. Oh, no, you know, she was part of all of this as well. So, you know, their stock in trade is disinformation, confusion, conspiracy, and, a, and, and this kind of, you know, highly emotive, charged sense of grievance and, you know, vengeance, and it's, it's all somebody else's fault. But what is really troubling is that, you know, that is lapping at our shores as well. You know, we are seeing evidence of that over here in the United Kingdom. Facebook, Twitter is just awash with the most insane conspiracy theories. A lot of this QAnon stuff as well is very much rooted in deeply anti-Semitic um, tropes, which of course we know, you know, has been a huge problem in British um, social media culture over the last um, few years as well. And, and we have we have conservative politicians who endorse um, organisations like Turning Point who promote some of these conspiracy theories as well. Um, Justin, I just wanted to end um, with a with a piece uh, on Vox saying that actually conspiracy theories about voter fraud, mostly on the right but and on the left too, are are much less dramatic than QAnon, but but ultimately more dangerous because there's a you know there's more likely to affect behaviour um, and sort of faith in the election. Do you agree that 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 it's perhaps these theories that you wouldn't instantly tag as conspiracy theories that are the ones to really keep an eye out? Yeah, I do. I mean, the I was looking at some, some numbers over the weekend. I mean, this constant sort of talk around delegitimizing the election and say, they say sort of migrating that from being a conspiracy theory to a sort of political theory. You know, there's a, some stuff in the National Review that's going to be 5 million new gun owners in 2020 in America, been 12 million guns sold this year. They said it's the biggest surge in recorded history. Those numbers just horrify me. I think, you know, even if that's 0.1% of those people or those guns, that's people who spent four years essentially being groomed for violence by a combination of fire hosing themselves with in terms of pure conspiracy theories, but then also the way they're being ginned up for this stuff by their elected officials. And I I genuinely don't know what it will be like when that crunch point comes, because it feels like, you know, unless things have changed drastically in the debates tonight, you know, it looks the numbers are with Biden. So Trump's best hope is to tell people that their vote was stolen and this secret society was working against them. I'm very, yeah, very despondent about it. Finally, it's Brideshead reinfected. The students are all back at university, but instead of drinking the bar dry, they're locked down in their halls of residence. Rooms that were designed to be bases rather than homes have become cells monitored by private security guards. Some 40 universities are reporting COVID cases. Manchester and Glasgow uh, have been particularly bad. And Labour have called for the return to university to be paused until a track and trace system is working, so sometime in the distant future. 
with the addition of distance learning, tuition fees and rent on accommodation that you can't leave, it's a far cry from the liberation that previous generations of students enjoyed. So if university is no longer fun and there will be fewer jobs at the end of it, how will it change the idea and reality of youth? Aisha, it seems now that the return of students uh, was a disaster waiting to, to happen, although um, I don't know. I'm not entirely sure that I, was, I, I would have made that prediction a few weeks ago. So who do you blame the most? Is it is it the government or the universities that didn't uh, anticipate or plan for this? I think it's a combination of both of them and they are both blaming each other. I think credit needs to be paid to the universities and college union who did warn about this like a few weeks ago and were 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 written off. I mean I had Dr um Joe Grady on on my radio program. Now she used quite explosive language she said and at the time everybody was really criticizing her she said there is a risk that student halls of residence is going to be a reenactment of what we saw in care homes and actually she was proved to be to be right on this and i think this is definitely the the new exam fiasco it started in scotland it's come down to the whole of the united kingdom and again gavin williamson is nowhere to be seen on this he's sort of um you know gone he's gone into sort of hiding but there's a, there's a lot of problems there's a lot of issues here again none of this stuff is simplistic and it is really glib to say well i would have done this or i would have done that it was a really difficult situation about 5 weeks ago we were all rightly arguing we have got to let young people have some semblance of normality they've got to get back to schools they've got to get back to colleges and they've got to get back to universities everybody was sort of agreed on that i think the problem on top of all of that is that universities there is a truth in the fact that they do need the funding from students they also need the um, accommodation rent as well there is a commercial aspect to this and the whole thing is just such a mess now i mean i spoke to robert halfen who is the chair of the education select committee last week and he is absolutely out, out there saying that universities should be giving a rebate to students because of the complete shambles that has happened but interestingly not even the labor party is taking that line and of course the the government isn't either so i think the whole thing is a complete mess it's negligence it's lack of preparation but there is a kind of structural commercial issue that does need to be looked at as well so do you think in the long term that this combination of, of the covid recession distance learning um could sort of mean a permanent change in the attractiveness of the university experience. I mean, the pandemic won't be with us forever. But if you're a, you know, 16-year-old running what you're going to do and you're looking at these experiences, do you think it's going to kind of take the shine off university for some of these people? Absolutely. I mean, the whole point of university, I'm obviously just speaking from my own experience, was not not to learn. It was to socialise. It was to develop that part of your, you know, really important part of your development, socialisation, interacting with, with other people, really like allowing that your kind of early adult self to to develop. And it will be such a shame if that goes. And students are already feeling that really acutely. I suspect that there will always be a desire to to come back to that. The idea that we'll just move to an online world for students, I don't quite buy into that because the, the, the interaction is such an important part of the experience. But I do think that the university chancellors have not covered themselves in, in glory. I mean, absolutely, we should be having a go at the government. By the way, not just in England, in Scotland as well. You know, this is not just a Westminster problem, but the universities have not covered themselves in glory in terms of how they've prepared for this. Uh, Justin, as we know, people in their 20s have been hammered uh, over the past decade with austerity, tuition fees, uh, Brexit, um, many, many horrible things that they did not uh, want while the right mocked them as lazy snowflake millennials with their bloody avocado on toast. Now you've got another wave um, that are going to ha- look like they're going to have quite a reduced university experience um, and then enter a, a recession-hit job market. Will this, do you think, permanently shape the politics of this of this cohort, as in, the, you know, going forward as they age that that this experience um will have just kind of set their worldview i mean i think it has to um to some degree but i mean i'm from my perspective i'm actually surprised at how 
little radicalization we see in that generation. When you consider the hand they've been dealt and what they've had to put up with, you know, it's just been one sort of catastrophe on top of another. But I think we also need to be careful of not projecting our own expectations onto theirs. You know, I think I think every generation does face challenges in different ways and they often have the, you know, the kind of energy and invention of youth where you can turn that into something productive and positive in a way that, you know, we maybe weren't expecting. So I, I think I would, I think it probably is, you know, difficult for students that are trapped in those halls in Manchester at the moment. But I would also caution too much against sort of, projecting on you know like they're not having the same experience we had you know they probably wouldn't want to and I I think there may be something more positive that comes out of it with this generation. Well you've been doing some work on Generation Z uh, for the Face magazine and in the media millennials and Gen Z are often pitted against boomers and Gen X the under 40s versus the over 40s death match. Is it more complicated than that? Uh, and that actually, you know, Gen Z behave uh, significantly differently uh, to millennials if you buy the idea that everybody of the same age behaves the same, which of course they don't. Yeah, it, it is more complicated. I mean, it's been a really, really interesting project. I mean, my main takeaway was just what an astonishingly impressive generation it is. Um, and I think, you know, for the reasons we just touched on, I think given a lot of the difficulties they've had to overcome and what they're still achieving. I genuinely think the speed with which we're going to see this generation move through business, the creative industries and politics, I think they will have an impact which is comparable to, you know, the boomers in the late 60s. I think it's genuinely going to be as seismic as that. Um, as for sort of the generational divides, that was really, really funny because the one that was really opened up was Gen Z v Gen Y. Um, I was doing some sort of interviews with, I think it's young guys about 20 and one of the set questions was you know what do you think about the generation immediately before yours and his answer was uh i think they need to shut the fuck up about harry potter and talking about how adulting is hard when i think what they actually mean is just doing some laundry and cooking for themselves and they're very uh they're very very dismissive of gen y who came before them um that's millennials yes uh, more commonly yeah um so, uh, yeah, they sort of see them as being this sort of slightly feeble kind of Harry Potter generation. They're always moaning about stuff where there's an interesting parallel. And you're seeing this across sort of like fashion, things in music is a really strong parallel between Gen Z and Gen X. Um, and I think to some degree they were similar eras. I think to some way, sort of subconsciously, I think Gen Z now are looking at what Gen X came through. That was, you know, a time of sort of poverty, right-wing government, soaring unemployment, this sort of spectre of disease looming over things. And all this stuff, which is still very relevant in the culture nowadays, from, you know, rave culture to sort of streetwear, zine culture, our end of football culture, all came out of that. And even, you know, a lot of like, the labels, you know, Stussy is huge again. Stone Island is huge again. We've just had a summer of illegal raves. You know, there's weird little pirate radio things popping up everywhere. Boys owners come back again. The face relaunched. I think there's something really interesting going on there. And yeah, I just sort of came out of the work just feeling enormously optimistic about what this generation is going to do. So I think as much as the situation in things like universities is really hard at the moment, I would have enormous faith in them flipping it into something positive well my daughter's 14 and she and she went out the other day looking like she was off to see the roses at spiked island <laughs> i had to show her some photos for reference and go do, do you see <laughs> the hat the flares arthur i just saw a uh, a poll yesterday which said that 40 percent of 16 to 25 year olds say they had lost hope uh in sort of fulfilling their ambitions and, and, and a fair chunk of that has sort of lost hope in achieving any kind of success and at the same time we get this kind of blame the young rhetoric uh in response to rising cases do the tories have anything and and, and the you know conservative media as well have anything to offer young voters or are they effectively alienating a generation well it, it looks a bit like that although as i recollect you know the tories have they're aware of the problem that they have because, you know, one of the things that people say is that you, you start to vote Tory when you get a mortgage, but people no longer get mortgages because houses aren't going to be affordable. And so, they're, you know, they're looking at other ways in which they can appeal to that younger generation. And obviously, for some people, actually, the populist nationalism, which is now a feature of the Tory brand, 
will appeal. You know, there are there are people for whom that that's important, and that, and that they will include the young. But it, yeah, it does seem to me that they 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 haven't quite figured out how they're going to reach that cohort. And you know, a lot of this talk about leveling up. You know, a, a lot of the the rhetoric is clearly trying to address that. The problem is it's not clear whether the actual policies, you know, and we haven't even mentioned Brexit, well, all those sorts of things, whether any of those will actually deliver anything that that that, that generation feels has done something useful for them. Like me, you've got a child in, in early adolescence. What do you expect or, or sort of hope for them in the next few years that, that, that might turn this around? My, my oldest daughter's 14. I'm very glad uh, that she's not, a university fresher at the moment, but I'm also kind of wondering, you know, what lies ahead for her. Yeah, and, and likewise, you know, my, my, my eldest is will be 13 in a few weeks, so just a bit younger. Uh, I mean, I think one thing is that you know, there's a hope that things are better by the time they're they're you know they're reaching that point. You know, the, the sense that I have, and I did actually have, a, I had a chat with my daughter just to try and sort of put, get a little feel on the sort of pulse of those sorts of things. I think that younger generation. Uh, sort of feel quite confident that, you know, that they'll be able to sort out all the idiocies of their parents, which is not surprising, particularly if you've met me. You know, I, I do think that, you know, this is the generation for, for whom climate strikes, school strike for climate, all that sort of thing, it's really struck a chord to them. And I, I think a lot of them feel quite sort of empowered by the idea that they'll be the ones that actually turn around a lot of the sort of problems that have been you know, been brought about by, by our generation and, and the ones before. Now, of course, you know, part of that is just the idealism of youth. But I suppose there is something where perhaps people will feel very focused on the climate emergency, which is something that, you know, we fail to address. I mean, even in this podcast, we haven't really talked about it. We always know it's there, but we're not doing anything about it. And, and maybe that generation will have that really clear eyed sort of focus on it. And, and that, that'll be their sort of defining challenge. We've come to the end of the podcast, which means it's time to ask our panel for their escape routes from politics. Aisha, what is diverting you this week? Well, I've been quite sort of, I have to say, I have been quite obsessed with politics this week. <laughs> I can't lie. I can't lie. But I have been listening a lot to the winner of the Mercury Music Prize, um, Michael Kiwanuku's album. I absolutely love it love it love it so that has been sort of my kind of treat for my ears away from politics this week it's such a beautiful album it's an absolute tonic isn't it it's also like a very i think it's a very kind and generous record that it it's it sort of it sort of feels like it's looking after you in some weird way yeah it's sort of comforting and soothing isn't it like i feel like it's really it's like a balm for your soul and i love all the kind of that sort it's a very warm slightly kind of sunny Californian feel to it. It's got a little bit of Jimi Hendrix in there. It's just so, like you say, it's really, really joyful, right? Now, even though some of the themes are quite big themes, politics, society, you know, racism, all that sort of thing, but it's it's just done so beautifully. It's it's just it's just so it's just been a delight to listen to um over the last couple of weeks. Mm. Arthur, what about you? Yeah, so my, my big discovery has been something on Netflix called Caliphate, and it's a um, a Swedish show, a drama series that follows a sort of group of young people in Sweden and also in Raqqa in the Islamic State and the sort of links between, and, and you've got these sort of young teenagers heading off to Syria in, you know, in some misguided uh, sort of a youthful idealism. I'm like the the absolute core demographic for this show. <laughs> I used to work in counterterrorism, and the show's filmed in Swedish and Arabic, which are two languages I speak. I'm I literally this this is like the absolutely perfect show. But even if you don't fit that admittedly rather obscure category, it's just a really well done insight, I think, into a world of that second or third generation uh, immigrant families across Europe who struggled with their sense of identity and for whom the possibility that the Islamic State could be their new identity was something that, you know, for a lot of us is just incomprehensible. But it, it this show succeeds in making it comprehensible and, and explains how for a lot of people, it, you know, it's not just about religion, about obsession with Islam, but it's about people trying to, you know, find their own sort of expression of who they are. And through this very weird way, uh, you know, that they were able to do so. 
That sounds great. Uh, Justin, entertain us. Uh, well, I'm obviously uh, rather less tasteful than uh, Aisha. So on the musical front, I've been reading an early copy of the forthcoming memoir by Rob Halford from Judas Priest, uh, Confess, which I think is in one of the big sort of Christmas celebrity biographies. And it's this astonishingly sort of eye-popping account of his uh, childhood and upbringing in Walsall in the late 60s, early 70s. Main revelation being so far that when he was working in the Walsall Playhouse, he worked out his favourite uh, tipple after work was the none more 70s combination of six barley wines and two mogadon. So uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, well, I, this... I, uh, I may keep this option in, revert, in reserve for when the, uh, when the weight of politics gets too much in the next few days. And uh, I may explore the six barley wine and a mogadon option to see how that works. Well, this is adjacent to your new book, of course. Yes, uh, Nothing But A Good Time, The Spectacular Rise and Fall of Glam Metal, out now in all disreputable bookshops. I mean, that plug, you were gracious enough not to plug it yourself, but I could not I could not let that go no, by. I appreciate yeah. it. I did, I did wonder, was I going to do the, um, yeah, the equivalent of a chat show and they sort of bang a couple off on the desk? Um, but uh, yeah, I thought <laughs> I would uh, let discretion be the better part of valour there. I very much liked in the Guardian uh, books Q&A when Lina Shriver was asked about the book that changed her life. And she said, my book, we need to talk about Kevin. It changed my life because it was enormously successful. And I thought, fair, yeah, fair, fair enough. Fair enough. But, um, that doesn't seem at all like the kind of thing I'd have expected Lionel Shriver to uh, come out with. <laughs> no, she's very, very shy and retiring. Mine is recently I got into the Amazon series Homecoming, which is I think the first series about three years old, but for some reason it took me three years. And then also simultaneously got into the podcast. So sometimes I enjoy reading a book while watching the TV adaptation and sort of going back and forth it's quite an interesting because you get insight into adaptation and here i was listening to the podcast alongside the tv series but very carefully episode by episode so that i didn't spoil the other one too much and it's such a good narrative podcast it's amazing tv show but it's also such a good narrative podcast from a few years ago and i've been looking for other good narrative podcasts but the ones that i've tried so far are a total radio play hokum <laughs> So it helps that the homecoming has like Catherine Keener and Oscar Isaac and David Schwimmer and like proper uh, convincing actors. So if anybody has recommendations for like really, really good uh, narrative podcasts, do let me know on Twitter. And that's the end of this week's bunker. Thank you to our panel, Aisha Hazarika. Thank you very much. Arthur Snell. Thank you. And Justin Quirk. Thank you very much, Dorian. We'll be back tomorrow with another bunker daily and the full length show this time next week. Don't forget, you can back us on the crowdfunding platform Patreon to see our Twitter or Facebook or search Patreon Bunker Podcast. If you back us, you'll get a shout out on the show. And here are some of them now. Hello and a big thank you from me to Mark Gill, Sean and Jeremy Till. So that's thanks from me and best wishes to Daniel Roberts, Adrian, just Adrian and John Reisenstein. From me, it's hello to Robert Jackson, Caroline Lavelle and Paul Bishop. And thanks from me to Rebecca Lewis, Pete Boardman and Alessandro Pina. Take care and see you next time. The Bunker was presented by Dorian Linsky with Aisha Hazarika, Arthur Snell and Justin Quirk. Audio production was by me, Alex Reese. The producer is Andrew Harrison and the assistant producer is Jacob Archbold. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. Podmasters production.